Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that at any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. All righty. If you're on LinkedIn as much as I am, then you very likely have seen something my guest has written. Joel Algy is the founder of Headhunter Media, but many people know him as that really down-to-earth guy on LinkedIn. You know, he's the type of guy that when you open up the dictionary and you look at the word authenticity, you see his picture. Yeah, I know that buzzword is thrown around way too much these days, but in this case, it really, really fits. Joel shares his story raw and unfiltered, as I would expect. Everything from being bullied as a kid to becoming a bully to experimenting with drugs and this crazy story at an airport, all the way to him finding LinkedIn and using it as a form of therapy, both for himself and for the people that follow him. You see, Job marches to the beat of his own drum, and he believes that most people should stop worrying so much about what other people think of them. He's a rebel. He's a bit of a rule breaker. And I'm so excited to share his story in this episode. So let's dive straight in to the conversation. Joel, welcome to Inside Out. Great to be here, Billy. Super excited. You are an extraordinary human being, my friend. And the minute that I met you, I knew you were someone special, someone that I want to keep in my life. And I'm so grateful to have started our friendship. And that's the beauty of a platform like LinkedIn, that it could connect like-minded people who just have this spirit about them that you feel connected to. I want to go back in time a little bit, about a year. 
And I want to read something that you wrote, and it wasn't a post, but it was a comment. Okay. okay? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Mark Metry, brother, this story is so powerful. I definitely relate to the 9-11 racism. Growing up in the north of England, I was called a packy by grown men since the age of five. I remember as a kid being called poo skin. I was in high school when 9-11 happened, and I was regularly called Osama and threatened all the time. Hmm. My reaction was to become a bully myself. Hmm. This lasted a few years but I hurt many with my words. Thanks for sharing this story of overcoming. I love the fact that ever since you were younger, you were destined for greatness. Hmm. I really appreciate you and wish you blessings with your TEDx talk today. Peace, brother. So let's talk about that, man. That was one of your earlier pieces of content. And people make the mistake to think a post is the only form of content, but no, comments are content too. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, man. So probably a lot of people don't even know. And for anyone who's out there, I'm originally from the UK. So I'm originally from England, which is why I kind of have a little bit of a twang in in certain words. So like certain, I say certain, or I say there's certain words, which I say, which I think people are like, oh, this guy's from the East Coast, but I'm actually from England. And the part of England that I'm from is a town called Blackpool. And without getting like majorly political, Blackpool's in the north of England, which is the north of England is very different to the south of England. So the south of England gets a lot of publicity. Obviously, London is a huge city. It's very, uh, very diverse. And it's almost like the center of, of financial and legal markets. So London is not a representation of the whole of England. And in fact, the north of England is very much so kind of a nationalistic environment. So their mentality would be England is for the English. And another thing that people might not know about England is because they're, they were a part of the EU, there was a lot of immigrants that would come in and a lot of Indians and Pakistanis actually live in England. So if you ever talk to anyone from England, they typically will love Indian food because there's a lot of Indians in England. So for anyone who's listening, I'm a quarter black. So my granddad, he's from Trinidad and Tobago, and he moved over to England. I believe it was in the 50s or 60s. And so he's 100% black. Maybe he's 50% Indian and 50% black. But he, anyhow, he moved over to England. And throughout like our, our family genealogy, I ended up kind of being one of like the darkest cousins that I have. So it's like all my cousins are actually really white and they look really, really white. We're all a quarter black, but I just happen to inherit more of the colors. So particularly in summertime, like I get really, really dark. Mm-hmm. And so I get confused. Like even now I get confused a lot with being Hispanic. Like a lot of people will think I'm Hispanic if they see me at the airport. People think I'm Indian or Arabic and all these different types of things. And so growing up, people always thought I was Pakistani. And in England, like I think people think English people are like super friendly and really nice, which they can be, but they're also like pretty in your face and they're pretty blunt. And so growing up, the slang that people would would say, they just call me Packy, Packy, Packy. And I think growing up, just experiencing that, I noticed that because I moved around quite a bit, I noticed that when I go to a new school, it was either get called Packy first and kind of take that and then just continue getting made fun of. Or if I just went on the aggression myself and just went up to like the toughest kid or the hardest kid, as we'd say in England, and I just went and pushed him or punched him, I wouldn't get any harassment after that. And that just kind of followed me. As I moved it over here in the, the States, it was the same thing. It was like, I came here and it's a lot more diverse here than it is in England. And so like going to middle school, everything was kind of fine. And, and like, I, you know, things actually changed for the better. But as soon as 9-11 hit, 
I was in high school and it was like, it was like a repeat of being a kid. Like people started, I think it's just kids having fun in some ways or just being insecure, but it started off with like Osama, you know, it was like Osama, your mama. And then it just, it kind of went on and on. And it was like a flashback to, you know, being the little brown boy in, in England, you know, kind of getting picked on from all ages. And same thing happened here. And, and it's funny because racism is a huge topic now, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. it's, it's, become obviously in the last year like things have just you know we got race tensions are are really high but back then it was cool for everybody to call me uh packy there was no race tensions it was it's like black people would say that white people like everyone in between and again like my defense mode was you know what instead of people saying that like i'm just going to become the aggressor really really quickly and so i was a really big bully in high school and i used to just get in fights for fun and I was really big in like getting attention. And I found like, the, you know, if I was the aggressor and I was the person that was kind of going after people, then I wouldn't get as much back towards me. And I think a lot of times we look at people who are violent or we look at people who are doing these things. And sometimes you got to step back and see, well, what happened to them? Like, why are they reacting this way? And I think if you look, you know, I got in a lot of trouble for, for these fights, for example. But then if you look back to it, it was like, it stemmed in the fact that when I was four or five and I was kind of innocent, I had grown men, like I said, grown, I mean, grown man, man, who's 30, 35, come up to a little kid walking home from school and calling him a packy and pushing him and wow. ridiculous. So I think when Mark posted that, he was just kind of talking about the very similar thing because he's, I think he's from Egypt or he's from somewhere. And it was like, he got a lot of the same abuse. And yeah, obviously people don't really talk about that a lot. They don't talk about like how bad it was when 9-11 happened. And a lot of people got a lot of abuse, but it wasn't really, it didn't definitely get, didn't get the same publicity as it does today with obviously the race situations we're in right now. Yeah. Well, it says a lot about you that you can dissect what happened in the past and really pinpoint a cause of what, and who you became in high school, which you morphed into a bully, not because you wanted to be a bully, but because you actually felt you needed to be a bully to counteract what was being thrown at you in the form of, let's face it, prejudice, racism, and even, hey, even if they didn't mean it, it can feel that way. Or even if they didn't mean it from a hate standpoint. And as you said, kids are being kids, right? Often they don't know what they don't know. I'm curious how that experience has informed who you are today as an adult really the whole experience of moving from the uk and then moving to the us and did that about at about 12 years old so making that move and then right up until the point i was eight i moved back actually moved back ended up moving back over to england moved back over to the us moved out to southern california so in in your neck of the woods Mm -hmm. and then moved back to Wisconsin. So I'm in, I'm in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which has obviously made the news recently for you know all the wrong reasons, basically a lot of these reasons that we're talking about. But I, I think how all these things impacted me is I just really feel like kind of just understand a lot of where people are coming from on both sides. So particularly with like the race issue, do I know what it's like to be a black person and judged by the color of my skin? Not a hundred percent, but there's definitely a percentage there. Mm. Do I understand what it's like for white people on the side of the issue, 100%, because, you know, my family is white and I'm white. I'm considered technically a white person, but I also know what it's like to be 
judged by black people. So like there's plenty of black people that were on the side calling me a packy and or not, maybe not black, but calling me Osama when I, when I moved over here at the airport, for example, like I get checked all the time by black people thinking I look like a terrorist. And especially if I grow out a big beard, like it's fashionable to do. And I had the man bun. I had, I looked very suspicious. So I get checked in the airport all the time. And so I felt very stereotyped for a long time and I, I still do. But I think what that does is it just gives you an understanding into the way that people think differently. And it also, it forces you to really try and listen and understand people and where they're coming from. And I think now we're living in a culture where people don't have the time to understand other people. And rightly so in some cases. I, th- I don't, I think if someone's hurling abuse at you or they're being really outright racist then and you're feeling that that's how they're being towards you, then obviously cut them off. But I think we're, we're we're doing that too much now. And so I think just being able to step back and understand and be sympathetic to people too. Like I, I look at it like, you know, when these white guys were calling me a packy, like why were they doing that? Well, maybe they were doing that because the neighborhood they grew up in has changed and they don't like the change. I can be sympathetic to that. It's just understanding like, I really do believe that at the heart of most people, they're good. And when you get, get them at an individual level and they're alone, I think most people are good people. Mm-hmm. I think there's crowd mentality and like it's easy to be act differently in a big crowd than than singularly. But I think for me, yeah, it's just just trying to be open and understand people. And I think when you've experienced a lot of these things firsthand, um, you understand too where the frustration is from people and you understand why people can feel the way that they do. That's how I like to approach everything in life is I'll listen to you and I'll, I want to understand. Doesn't mean I'll agree with you. But I'll be empathetic, and and I understand that you have your rights to a point of view as well. Yeah, but I, I just I don't I don't see that as much in in people nowadays. I see a lot of closed minded, and I don't see a lot of openness for even hearing other people, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of sad. Yeah, it is. At the same time, as you said, people are inherently good. I believe that too, and I think what happens is they see other people doing something, and as you've really said is there's this sort of herd mentality where people feed off of each other and make bad decisions, say the wrong thing, and start to perpetuate a hostile atmosphere that it has really come to a crescendo over the last few months with everything happening. And it's, and you know, I don't want to go too down that rabbit hole. In fact, I'd like to transition to something that I found out about you that I didn't know. I just had Uh-oh. never, I'd never seen, no, it's not that. It's, I'd never seen your TikTok videos, man. And I really love the approach you're taking with your TikTok videos. One of the things that you talk about is, and you're not disparaging college, but you're saying what college didn't teach you. I'll give you a flavor that your career is a marathon, not a sprint, that you should take risks in your 20s, that you should care less what people think about you, that you didn't learn how to build true wealth. You didn't learn how to have self-care and how to think about your own mental health. You didn't learn how to build relationships and you didn't learn about sales or personal finance or emotional intelligence. And in a minute, we're going to get into the finance part of your journey. But I'm just curious, like, which of those stand out? And we can get to go to any of them, but which of those stand out and why do you highlight them in your TikTok videos? Number one, I think like college debt right now is is insane. And I was lucky enough to not really take out on that biggest student loans just because I ended up going to a pretty modest 
school and I wasn't really caught up with the whole idea of like the school that you went to really mattered. I literally went to school because my mom was like, you should go to school. And, and, you know, it was again, moving over to America when I was 12, culturally speaking, we didn't really know a lot about like American culture anyway, but I think everyone knows like career path is it's what you do. It's what you do. Exactly. It's kind of like when in Rome, you know, and so I, I went to school, I made that decision, but I continue to play the rules like once I got out of school. So I went and got a job at a bank, a really big bank. And it was during the time right in the recession. So it was like hard. It's just really hard to get a job. And I was like, you know what? I got a degree in finance. I'd prefer to be like a stock trader or something cool. Those options weren't available. I don't have a network. I didn't really know anyone. I live in a small town. Get a job at a bank, right? Because that's finance. And and I stayed there for like way too long. And it wasn't until about five years into my actual career that I got an opportunity to work at a startup from a friend who just decided to start a recruitment company. He'd been in recruitment for a while. And I'd actually originally interviewed with him five years prior to that, right when I was graduating. And the job description at the time was, you'll just drive around with me, we'll sell people and stuff, and then you can do the recruiting. <laughs> and I was just like... Dude, I have no idea, like, even what recruiting is. Like, I'm just gradu- graduated. And he, but the thing is, is if I stuck with him at that point, I probably would have been like his partner in the whole company. So I, but because like I, I wanted to play by the rules, I was like, well, Wells Fargo seems safer than this startup. Five years later, he's like, what can I do to get you over here? I said, okay, well, I'm moving back to Wisconsin give me an opportunity. And it was like, I went into the interview. I knew everybody who was interviewing from past companies and, or who was interviewing me. And that was my first real taste in the like entrepreneurial like environment. And just started seeing like how a company actually gets built and like what it takes. And that was really the point where I realized like, Oh, okay. Like you don't have to do everything by the rules and you can figure out ways to disrupt industries. And so I think with that TikTok. It's just reminding people that you have choices and particularly kids. I mean, I, and I think they're onto that more than my generation was onto that, where there's so many kids who are just killing it on YouTube or they're killing it on TikTok. They're just doing amazing things. But at the same time, I just think it's, for me, the biggest one is just like, don't care what people think about you. And like, we put way too much stock into that. And I think that impacts CEOs. That impacts leaders in business. It impacts people who are up and coming. Like, I think we're all, we're so affected by what people think. And so I think for Mm -hmm. me, that's the biggest part that I would focus on for anyone. It's like, are you doing what you're doing because you are doing it because of what people think about you or because you think you should do it? Or are you doing it because you genuinely want to do it? I think when you talk to a lot of kids, it's like, it's like the default is, well, I'll go to the tech school for two years and get my gen ads and then I'll go to the big school. And it's like, Mm. why are you even doing that? And then you start digging into it. Like, why, why, why? And I think at the end of the day, you dig a little deeper and then it's like, well, because that's what we should do, right? And that's what everyone's telling me. The cost of that though is you can end up with $100,000 worth of debt. I don't know how you can recover from that quickly. And like, there are people, it depends what you go for, I guess. But I think there's a lot of people who like, they go to that school, they go to that big school and it's like they're getting $150,000 worth of debt at the end. It's like knowing what I know in recruiting now, it's like, man, that's ridiculous. So anything I can do just to help people see that, I'm on board with it. Well, you're leading a life that other people want you to lead. 
instead of a life that you want to lead because you want to lead that life. And I'm glad that you brought up breaking the rules because that was going to dovetail perfectly into my question, which you went from finance where to your own admission, you were basically, you found yourself in the space that you wanted to be in. You said you wanted to be a stock trader, but you were got into finance, but ultimately you were living paycheck to paycheck and you realized that wealth doesn't equate to happiness. And I think that's a really good an important realization that you had at a young age, which ultimately led to you moving back to Wisconsin and getting this job with the guy that you were going to work for previously. And actually, I'd say it's probably a good thing you didn't do that because you wouldn't be where you're at right now. I think everything wouldn't have worked out exactly the way it is today. But what I'm curious about is where does this rebel side of you come from? Because you get in this finance space where it's all about rules. You're not, you are not this is what I know about. You think differently. You break the status quo. You think outside the box. You do things differently. you got a bit of a rebel mindset. Where does this rule breaker side of you come from? Yeah, I think, honestly, I think it roots back to those young childhood days of being in England and and just automatically being different. But then move over to America and automatically I'm different because I've got an English accent and people like, where are you from? Where are you from? And then growing up, it was like, I tell people I'm from England and they're like, you don't look like you're from England. And then I go back over to England and it would be like, you're American now. And then I tell them, no, I was born in Blackpool. And they're like, no, no way. You're American. You sound American. And so I think it's just a case of like misidentity. Like I'm not what I look like from the outside. And so in every, in every circumstance, like when I meet people from England and I say, Hey, guess what part of England I'm from? Well, first of all, I go, Hey, guess what? I'm from England. They're like, no way. And I tell them what part of England I'm from. And they're like, you just see this like look of like, what? I Like I would never have guessed. And so I think that in itself just starts a trend of being different. And then as I look at how things evolve, like I was always really good at school, like academically really good, like a very fast, like very fast at math. Like I learned math really quickly. So arithmetic was just really quick, like times tables, something as basic as the times tables, really, really, really quick compared to most people. And I, I just would notice that. But I always had a desire to like be accepted, but I was always different. So I kind of ran with it and was like, you know what? I'm going to push being different to like the limit. And I think that chord has just, I've kind of just over time, it's a weird dichotomy, right? Because it's like I was playing by the rules, but I'm different. And I think now as I'm getting to the point in my life where I number one, I realized like I don't want to build anyone else's dream. Number two, I realized like the difference is actually my biggest strength. Now I'm really fully able to run with it. And I think within the business world, I think being different and being a rebel, it ultimately pays off. And I think, I mean, there are definitely people who like I know that love process and they love following the rules. And so they're really, really happy doing that. And I love that. And I love the fact that they know that about themselves. I think for me, just not who I am. And so I've, it's taken me a lot longer than I think most people it takes them. It's taken me 11 years, but I also realize it takes people sometimes 20, 30 years to get to Mm -hmm. that point. And so I just feel like now I'm free to be different. And then I'm like, oh, I'm also like creative and I think differently. So so now I'm playing on that a lot. And within the industry that I'm in, which is recruiting, it's very like one dimensional industry. I don't know. It's just like everyone has the same mentality. So to be breaking out of that industry, now I'm seeing the opportunity of like how I can actually think different. And now it's like I'm coming into how can I build a business around this in, with marketing and recruiting and, and bringing them together? And that's really exciting for me. But the most exciting part about it is, is like, I feel like I'm 
not compromising like who I am as well. So like I get into meetings sometimes with people and I'm just like, okay, we're not a good fit. See you later. And having that, that freedom to be able to do that is really, really, really cool as well. I feel like there's so like everything kind of ties together with that. But I think that rebel heart, that rebel spirit, it's like I've tried playing by the rules and now it's just Mm -hmm. really, really, really coming out. And uh, yeah, I love it. Enough is enough. Well, speaking of breaking the trend and thinking and acting differently, one of the missions that you have is to humanize the recruiting process, which by all accounts has a wide range of realities. Let's just put it that way. You know, you got everything from very transactional and zero humanized nature to what you're doing, which is thinking about the person. Talk about why that is so important to you and what that exactly means. With recruiting, number one, the industry as a whole, you know, I'm, I'm coming from it from like a, the standpoint of a third party recruiter, otherwise known as a headhunter. And, and what I'm looking to do is take agency owners, so people that own a recruitment agency that, that does headhunting and helping them to kind of get back to like the why they're in the business in the first place. Because because what happens in that industry is it's like most industries, it's really heavily focused on making money. But within recruiting, it's like your product, and this is how people talk. They say like your product is your candidate, right? So mm. um, I've got a great product and my client is the company I'm pitching this product to. Now, if you're a SaaS, you know, if you're in SaaS and you're in sales and you've got an awesome product, that's cool. Like you got a product, it's an actual product, but messed up when you start talking about people as products right from the get-go. But you can't get around that, right? Because like the business is your candidate. So if you've got a great candidate or like product and you want to pitch it to somebody, I don't really see a, ra- a way around that. But then it's even worse. It, it compounds it even worse when now they're paying you for this great product then they're paying you a lot of money it's very lucrative so like recruiting is it's super lucrative so there's recruiters that out there that are making more than doctors you know like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous you hear jokes like you know they joke about like you know it's like human trafficking you know, almost you I know was thinking, and, i was thinking that actually as you were talking that's exactly what i was thinking it is it's like a legal form of human trafficking and then on, on the on the other side of it it's like you have recruiters then who are like really good with people and they really care. But that's like their facade, you know? It's like they really care. But do they really care? It's like, no, obviously, it's like they're really motivated by money. And so that's like the third-party world. And the interesting thing is that like most of the recruitment companies I've worked with and most of the recruiters that I know are actually great people. But I think the industry as a whole, it's like there's some people in there that aren't great and there's a, and there's a decent chunk of people that, that aren't great. And there's a decent chunk of like recruitment owners that they care more. They just care about the money. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what my goal is, is to help those recruitment owners that are actually the good ones that really do care about people. It's helping them get their story out and it's helping like build them up because the other part of the industry is it's really antiquated. So Mm -hmm. the quickest way to make money is to pick up the phone and call people. And so what's happened is in these agencies, marketing has just completely gone out of the window and marketing isn't even valued. There's a couple of companies that are really good at marketing, but most of them, they're just not. And it's because the quickest way to make money is to pick up the phone and make things happen. So I think with, with all that, like I've had some really negative experience and I've had some great experiences with the industry. 
but I, I just realized like my real skill set is it's creativity and it's telling stories. And so because I know that industry I'm from it and I know the overall issues that they have with branding, I'm like, man, let's let's help let's help the good guys. So that puts a lot of power in my hands actually, because find really good companies to work with. If I get a sense on the phone, like I can just tell by how people talk and how they approach the industry. If they're approaching it the wrong way, then I'm pretty quick just to say, hey, look, like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work. And so I've, I've taken a really customized approach. I've taken advantage of the fact that I'm small. It's just myself right now. And I'm really wanting to find like the best partners and the ones that, number one, I want to elevate and they're going to be easy to work with. But number two, the people that are really genuine and really care because that's the whole goal of it. It's not just to get a marketing agency and make money. What you are able to do is as a small new company, you're able to set the the tone of the company because it's just you right now. And part of that tone is discretion and being able to say yes or no to the people or organizations that you work with because of what you choose to work with or who you choose to work with. And yes, you can be selective partially because of what you have established in terms of your own personal brand on LinkedIn. And I want to get into that in a minute. But before we do, I want to talk about something that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is mental health in the workplace and making it more accessible. Because you already highlighted that as I mentioned in your in your TikTok videos, that it's just something that's not spoken about, especially in school. It's just not. And, and maybe there's starting to be more of that, but by and large, especially when you were in school and, and when I was in school, yeah, it just wasn't there. So tell us about why that's a personal mission of yours and what you think people should be doing to help with making sure mental health is a part of the workplace landscape. You know, I think it's a really timely issue right now because obviously we're all going through a mental health struggle right now, like everybody, because there's the unknown. And so everybody's battling at least with that unknown and uncertainty of, of the future. And that's elevated now. I think we talk a lot about like work from home and how that's impacting teams and how people and managers are interacting. So we've seen an acceleration, I think, with mental health in the workplace. For me, the discussion with mental health started about 15 years ago. I was 18. I was living in England at the time because I'd moved back over to England and this is feeling like super lost in my life and like really not knowing kind of the direction I was going to take. And I, I actually ended up making a decision to stay in England while our family went through the green card process. And what I didn't realize was in making that decision, because I'm like kind of a rash person, so I don't really think of decisions. So I just made this decision. I was like, nope, I want to stay in England. But I couldn't actually travel back to the States for about and I think it was 18 months to two years. And when I actually realized realized the decision I had made, I started feeling really, really alone in England. And I ended up doing some drugs and I'd used a lot of drugs in high school and like drugs that were always like a big part of like how I would express myself, which I found later was like how I just dealt with depression basically through high school. Uh, but when I was 18, I didn't really understand that. And no one had ever talked to me about depression. No one had ever talked to me about anxiety. No one had ever talked about bipolar. No one talked about mental health. And so at 18, I ended up experimenting with some drugs. And I ended up you know, basically going on like a 36-hour like binge. And I was just aw awake for 36 hours. And I was drinking the whole time. And I started having hallucinations. I actually had a psychotic episode. And it ended up where I was actually in an airport trying to fly home to the US. And 
again, because I look, you know, like a terrorist. Like, I I mean, I showed up looking like a terrorist. I had backpack on. I didn't have anything in the backpack because I had all my stuff in the U.S. And I thought I was just going to basically, you know, I had my ticket and I thought I was just going to hop on the plane and go back to the U.S. Where what would have happened was that I would have gone back, could have probably made it to the U.S., but I would have had to go through immigration and they would have been like, yeah, you can't actually be here. You have to go back home. But I ended up like... I was out of my mind. It, I remember the day because it was easy to remember. It was June 6, 2006. And I, I was like listening to like, what was I like? I was listening to 3-6 Mafia and it was like, I was psychotic. So it was like everything was lining up and making sense. It's just this crazy day basically. And ended up where I ended up being stranded in London with no money because I gave all my money away because I was psychotic. And I ended up getting admitted to a... Uh, a hospital, like the police picked me up and they'd sent me to a hospital because they could tell I was psychotic, basically. And I was just like going basically nuts on the streets. And so I ended up in hospital and one of my uncles that lived by who hadn't seen for 10 years picked me up from the hospital and I still couldn't sleep. And and, and it basically ended up where I ended up getting what they call in England section. So you get sectioned for 28 days in England. And it's basically like you have 28 days to prove that you're not a harm to yourself or other people. And if you can't prove it within that time, you actually stay indefinitely in hospital. So I'm faced at this point where I'm 18 and I'm like trying to like recall what even happened this day. I'm going through all this stuff and I got I ended up getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder, mainly because of the psychotic episode. But at that point, it's like I'm 18. Everyone else that I know who's in the States is figuring out what school they go to, what college. And I'm there 18, like having a breakdown, all this stuff. So I think at that point. I started taking a hard look at my life and I just looked at my high school years and I realized I said I was pretty aggressive and I did bully a lot, but I was also like just depressed a lot. And I was like, I experimented a lot with drugs and that was to like self-diagnose myself. And it was mainly like weed in high school and, and you know, I just smoked, weed, smoked a lot of weed. But then right as I hit 18, I started doing a lot more like cocaine and I started getting on some of the harder type drugs. And I think just everything... It was all just trying to me deal with stuff. And so I would drink a lot too. Like I was a big, big drinker. And I think it was just like self-medication. But at 18, getting faced with all these questions of like, well, what's bipolar disorder? What's depression? And this is all playing out with my family who's in the US still. Like they weren't able to come over to the UK until like three or four weeks later. And so just dealing with this mental health stuff at that age, you know, for the last 15 years, I've just been aware of it. And I lived each day by day. But I started getting into the workforce and I just realized like, number one, it's like super taboo to talk about mental health. And like most managers are really afraid of it. HR is afraid of it. CEOs are afraid of it. Everyone's afraid of it. And there's these connotations like depression means weakness or bipolar disorders. It's like completely wild thing that's uncontrollable. And I think we're seeing it more now. I mean, because people are socially distanced. They're in their homes. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of people who are dealing with unknowns. There's a lot of people who have worked jobs for 25 years and suddenly they're furloughed and they don't know what to do or they've lost their jobs. And so I think for me, being vocal about mental health now, it's easier because I've been dealing with it for 15 years, but I've chosen to make myself somebody who's open to have conversations and open to share my story. And I get people like, oh, you're brave for doing that. And it's like, well, I guess, but then at the same time, it is part of my story and I'm going to be passionate and I'm going to share. I think for a lot of other people, like I get a lot of messages of people like, dude, that's super encouraging. That story like gives me hope for where I'm at. And 
I'm more interested in that than I am like some ignorant CEO looking at me and being like, oh, why is this guy sharing this? Just like mm-hmm. sharing it because like people can't talk about it without feeling like embarrassed and weak. And yeah, okay, we people talk about it on, you know, celebrities come out and talk about it, you know, like great celebrities are talking about it. It's like that's great in some ways, but in the business world, it's just it's so taboo and it's like we're coming to a time now where a lot more young people are coming into the workforce and they're a lot more aware and a lot more based on feelings and emotions. I think like the future CEO, like they have to be able to have conversations. They have to be able to be runnable and transparent with people. And they have to know how to deal with issues like mental health and depression and anxiety. I use it on LinkedIn because I think it's great. You know, I think I, I like it when people are taken aback by it and they're like, whoa, aren't you afraid of people not going to think you're professional? And I'm like, yeah, that's the whole point. Like I want people to, I want it to challenge people. I want it to be something that they look at and go, whoa, like this guy's bald for talking about it. Cause I don't, I don't think that should be the case. So that's where the passion comes from. Well, first, thank you. And I'm not surprised at the level to which you just shared. I I don't know you well, but I know you well enough to know that you are able and willing to share your story, not least of which because of what you said, which is you would much rather be speaking to the person who you're going to impact because they need to hear it than worried about how you'll be judged by the business leaders, CEOs who are afraid to talk about this. So again, Joel, thank you. Yeah, yeah. One may wonder how we transition from there (laughs) to LinkedIn, but let me tell you, it's because you have cited your content creation as a form of therapy for you, which I I found that a really, really interesting way to think about creating content. And it's actually, it's it's therapeutic for you, but what's also true is it's therapeutic for those that read it. Hmm. I really think that is a, a powerful combination that you're not only able to have some therapy inward, but you're also able to help others. Talk about why you feel that's the case. Yeah, I think it it all comes back to like where it started for me in terms of at least with LinkedIn. So going back to Mark Metry, like I I actually put my first comment ever that really got me going was on one of Mark Metry's posts. And he had talked about his story and it was like his comeback story. And this was back in September of 2019. So about, you know, about a year ago, year, year and two months. And he just posted his comeback story. And, you know, sometimes like on LinkedIn, like you get a post like right away. And so you can, you will say like now, and if you're that first person, mm-hmm. and I didn't know any of this at this time. So if you, but if you're that first person and it's someone who's got a good following, like you actually can like your, your comment can be seen by a lot of people. And and I didn't know this. This wasn't strategic. It was like, literally, I'm sitting on my couch and I see this comeback story. And I was like, I think I'll share my comeback story. And I've been following Mark a little bit and connected with the stuff. So I, I just shared my, and I shared that story basically that I just shared with you about the mental hospital and what happened. And I share, so I share it kind of nonchalantly. And then this was back a year ago. So like the algorithm was way different too. And like, I mean, he was like on fire. He would get like a thousand likes on something and it would like in within like six hours. So I post this and it was like, it got like 80 likes on it and like bunch of like people commenting and I got two direct messages and one guy is just like, yeah, my brother actually committed suicide and your story though, it's like really gives me hope for where I'm at. And the best way to describe it is like a light went on inside me and I was like, I suddenly realized 
you can make an impact with social media, which sounds so stupid because everybody talks about it all the time. But to give you some context, like up until that point, I'd been off of, I've been off of Facebook for about four years. I've been off of any social media because I thought it was a waste of time because I watched a TEDx talk where a guy basically said, it's a waste of time. It's entertainment. And I was like, yeah, he's right. I'm like, this is a waste of time. And I'm like, stupid. And I got really productive in that. Once I got off social media, I got really productive. But LinkedIn, I, I stayed on LinkedIn because I'm a recruiter. And that's how I connect with people. And I occasionally peruse the newsfeed. I'm a man of faith. So, and I really believe at that, that point, I was just being directed by God, you know, to like post this, to like make this comment. But then it was like, the best way to describe it, it was like this light went on inside of me. And it was like, to the point where I suddenly had vision for like impacting people with content. The funny thing is, is like the more that I would experiment with it and the more I'd post, obviously we, we know dopamine and all that is a big impactor because dopamine is, is kind of, that's what we get from likes and views. But I think for me, it was like the impact outweighed the dopamine. And then it just was never about likes and views. And so it ended up like I would share a lot of like positive messages but then I realized like the positive messages a lot of times were just like for me, like I just mm-hmm. I had people be, say like, oh, it's corny or it's, you know, like whatever. But, you know, the stuff about mindset in particular, like you are what you think. Those are truths. And it's actually really powerful truth. We're just so numb by powerful truth because we have so much accessibility to it. We don't believe those mm. things are real. But it was like I was talking to myself. And then I think. Because of that and because of the fact that like I have so much fun with posting content, it is like a creative outlet. It's therapeutic. And the most miraculous thing of all is it's like turned into like a way for me to actually work and do business with, which is amazing. Like that's that's an awesome thing for it to all tie in. And I'm not sitting here right now as like a billionaire that's like some social media mogul. I'm literally just somebody who's like really enjoys making an impact. I enjoy the whole process behind it. And now I'm starting to see that I think do think differently. And now I can impact and grow a business behind that as well. And it's still therapeutic. So it's it's almost like a tale of like, I wonder if I hadn't of like even commented in the way that I, I did and realized like what really impacted people was the fact that I was really vulnerable because I'm a really vulnerable person. And it's a true story too. And so I think if you pair vulnerability and authenticity and being real, mm-hmm. it's going to connect with people. And then you add on there that like, to me, I believe like people who don't have a motive, especially with like stuff like podcasting or videos, I actually believe that the people that don't have a motive end up doing way better than the people who kind of set out with a motive because there's something about doing something for the love of it and for like a reason other than just your own vanity or profitability that it's like people connect with it differently. It's really weird. It's like, I can tell when someone's posting something, you can tell if they're just out there for like likes or they're out there. You can just tell. And I think for me, that's what's really electrified it is the fact that I love it. It's like good for me to be able to post. So then I don't, I don't suffer with burnout or like freaking out about stuff. It's just, I enjoy it. So I do it. And I think it's worked out. Obviously, you've seen my TikTok, for example. Like, I spent a lot of time actually on those TikToks. And guess what? I don't have a million followers. I got like 3,000, which, I mean, honestly, it's not any, 3,000 is still a lot in there. But I enjoyed actually making those videos as well. And it actually kept me humble because I was like, 
the TikTok didn't blow up. I don't have 50,000, 100,000, a million people. I just do it because I enjoy it. Whereas I've seen other people jump on there and try and do it. And then they're like, two weeks later, they're off it because they didn't get the quick results that, you know, Gary Vee promised them. But then I, <laughs> but then I see other people who do it and they like, like there's a guy locally to me who just started doing short form physical comedy and the guy's got 11 million followers oh, on Oh, dude, I, I know. Because I binge watched every video that you put out. In one of your videos, you talk about Daniel, right? Yep. And then I started watching his stuff. I'm like, okay, I got to get back to Joel's stuff because I'm, I'm meeting you tomorrow. But but uh, amazing. He's super cool. And I talked to him when he had 300,000 followers. His video had just yeah. got 15 million views. I said, what's your game plan? And he goes, I just love short form comedy. The guy now, I mean, he's pulling it over to Instagram. So he's got half a million followers on Instagram. And we're talking 11, no, it wasn't you. He started in January. So 10 months, Wow. 11 million followers. And I, I think they're funny. They're great. Yeah. But, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, and he's like talented with it, but it's like, he, again, it's like, I don't think he set out to be where he's at. And it happens to a lot of people. I think it's like, you just set out to do like what you love and what you're passionate about. And it just, it wins out every mm-hmm. single time. But we have a subculture of like, people that try and build something for like those wrong motives. And some people are successful for it because, you know, if you're, if you're like super attractive or like you've got some innate cool quality about you, I think you do all right. But like Dan's a great example, man. He's just like, he's doing it for the love of it and he's great at it. And he's kind of taken that platform by storm. And I love it. What's his last name again? LaBelle. LaBelle. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So so check, check him out. Well, brother, listen, so here's the thing. You are so right about the motive piece yet. The reality is everybody does. And you, you talk about this, everybody on the platform, for example, they're on it for some reason, you know, you got on LinkedIn because you wanted to get an internship. You didn't take it seriously for years. And it was only about a year or a little bit more that you started taking it seriously. One of the things that you do, and this is like for anyone that's wants to get like a huge insight from this conversation. It's this, you are a big advocate for the power of off platform conversations. Tell us why those are so important to building your community and why you think it's been such a, a a critical part of your success on the platform. I think the reason it's important is because what I've realized with like, even like some, some of like the greatest people on social media. So I've, I've, I mean, Gary Vee is the best example of this. It's like, it's not like he's just doing content in a room disconnected from everybody. It's like he documents everything. But when you see like the interactions with people, he doesn't just have like people who are liking his stuff. Like some people do. It's like he's connected though with people and he he connects with the audience. And I think I realized that really quickly. I had one conversation with a guy in Australia and Mm -hmm. it was about two weeks into my content journey. And we just connected. We just had like a wild conversation and he was like in a different time zone. It was, it was an amazing conversation. And again, it was like a light went off in me and I was like, this is how you build. Like you actually get to know people. I think since that point, like it's almost become like a weird addiction to me where it's like, I talk to probably two or three people offline every day. And the more I've done that, the more I've seen my engagement go up. And so people talk about like pot engagement, right? Like that's a way to boost the stuff. The reason I'm I'm so adamant against it is because I think it's too small and it's like you lock yourself into like the same 10 or 11 people. And and the reason they do that is because like you obviously get that that engagement you count on. But I'm like, man, that's too small. I connected with 
400 people, 500 people, 1,000 people. It's got to be 1,000 people. And so it's like my pod's like 1,000 people. And we don't, and, and instead of sending like messages through the, or sending like content through the messages, I send my content through the newsfeed. And when you look through the people who like my stuff, I would say 80% of them who are first network connections of people I've actually talked to. That's why they like it because they know me. Mm. I'm convinced it's the same with any platform. It's like you, if you actually really take that time to get to know people and then you support them and it's a back and forth thing, you're going to grow a community and then that will spur your audience growing bigger. Now, on top of that, you got to put out content that people want to engage and that's kind of the other piece to it. But I, I think that's a huge part. And I think if you're not doing that, on LinkedIn in particular, you're really limiting yourself and you're limiting the collaboration. You're limiting business opportunities. You're limiting like future opportunities, which you have no idea about. And I think we talked about this when we talked offline. It's like, I don't know where you're going to be in 20 years, but you know, maybe you're CEO of like a multi-billion dollar company. And it's like, we've known each other for 20 years at that point. Mm. And I look at some of the people who are up and coming on that platform, certain people like think like Mark Metry, he's a guy who's like, he's like 23 and he's connected to like some like huge people, but he's like, he's also like super creative and, I, and I've built a good relationship with him now. Like it's taken a while and we've had some good interactions and we talked offline. He's been on my live show, but I've got a, a, a sneaky suspicion that, that he's in 15 years going to be in a way different place than he is now and for the, for the good. And I feel like that with most of my connections is like they're go-getters and they're, they're people who are, they're going to make things happen over the next five, 10 years. And so I think you have to think like that and approach conversations like that and have that vision for it. But the other piece is, I think you just have to love connecting with new people as well. That'd be my advice to anyone. If you're not having connection conversations offline, just start doing it and see what happens. And I think it, it I think it then you start seeing the engagement online, which is cool, but more importantly, I think you start seeing like just better collaborations and better opportunities for things in life in general. Well, I think there's so many unknown opportunities that will present themselves as a result of you expanding and meeting new people. And the thing that I love about the way you approach it is you don't come in with an agenda. Your agenda is to be curious. Your yeah. agenda is to not have preconceived expectations of what this relationship will bring. But the result is that you're actually building genuine relationships. And yes, those people are much more likely to interact through an engagement saying they're going to like a post or comment on a post. And that's nice, but that person may also be a business partner. That person may also provide some other opportunity or may you, you may provide an opportunity for them. And that's a mutually beneficial relationship. Or you just may become friends. And there's, I mean, exactly. that, that's the best thing possible. Let's be honest about it. The other thing you highlighted is content. And I know content is super, super important to you. And not only as a creative outlet and a therapeutic outlet, but a way to connect and a way to make an impact. You went from doing a post a day to two posts a day. Now you're at three posts a day on average. And you're big on testing and seeing what works, seeing what's, what resonates what have you found out? What can you share with the audience that would be like three or four or five takeaways? Like, okay, they like shorter. They like this. Like what do people, what resonates the most based on your testing? I could tell you what they like the least. You know, maybe we start from that point. I think sure. we, when we talk about this, like everybody primarily that I know that's on LinkedIn is on there for that business. And I don't think you should get away from that. So I think the dangerous play is you don't ever talk about your business. 
But when you do talk about your business or you talk about what you do, the amount of engagement it's going to get, it's going to be automatically lower. Why? Because there's only probably a certain part of your audience that's actually involved in the business that you are involved in. So for example, I market to agency recruitment owners. So my content in the morning now is all about agency recruiters and recruiters on LinkedIn. Those posts do the worst out of all of them, but it's okay because I expect that because it's like directly to do with my business. Right. Smaller market overall that you're talking to. Exactly. That's what you got to think about. So if you want a post to do really, really well, think about what is going to relate to most people. Easiest one is you do a post about LinkedIn. It's going to do great. Why? Because we're all on LinkedIn. So automatically it's going to resonate with every single LinkedIn user. So anybody on LinkedIn, if you do a post about LinkedIn, they're going to relate to it. So it's thinking about content of like, who is the actual audience that this post is going to reach? And then you just play around with it. Now, as far as like the length, I found that like the medium posts, so that would be a post where where you've got the first three lines and then you've got the click. And then it's maybe, it's enough to see it on like one screen so you don't have to scroll on a phone. That length of post does the best because it's easy to consume it's quick to consume and you can get you can finish a full thought in it i think a quote like a small quote can do really really well or it can do really really bad depending on how good the quote is Uh, but those can do really really well as well and then i think it's time of the day and when you're posting so for example like my my posts in the morning are a lot longer because i think people are just like they're more business mode in the morning at least most of my network is in the u.s and then the posts in the evening and the weekends are usually shorter because I don't think people want to read a book in the evening or on the weekend. For me, it's just it's testing, 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 and then it's looking at the post like the don't the posts that don't do well, and just going back and literally just it doesn't have to be this huge analytical thing where you're breaking it down, dissecting it. But you just look like why didn't that post do well? Why didn't it? And I think that's another big reason that I'm not a proponent of like the organized engagement is because mm-hmm. it's so hard to measure then. Like why a post isn't doing well if, every, if, right. all you, if all your homies are showing up. And <laughs> I think it keeps you honest then. And it's like, it keeps you engaged too with the audience and like what, what they want. My advice to people is don't judge. And I wrote about this today, like figure out like what your goal is. Are you looking for more brand awareness and obviously more engagement and more views matter? If you're looking for just straight business, engagement just doesn't matter. It's what you do with that engagement that matters. So it's where the offline conversations come in. It's like, how many people are you able to pull up, pull into, pull from a, an online engagement, pull them offline? Like the better you can do at that, the better you're going to be able to grow, grow business. So it just look at what your goals are. I think if your goal is brand awareness, then you need to focus more on how do I bring a broader audience in to spurn that engagement. But you can't ever go away from like, what your business is. So what I've seen some people do is like they find a viral post and they find that, I mean, we all know the viral secrets on LinkedIn. It's not that hard. Dear hiring manager or friendly reminder. You just look at the posts that went go viral. If you model them, like you're probably going to go viral as well. The problem is, is that if that's all you focus on, then when people meet you, it's like, they're not going to know even what you're about. Mm-hmm. One, for me, one of the biggest like tests of this is like when I take conversations offline, automatically people know I'm a recruiter. They know I'm in recruiting and that speaks huge. Even though my, my, a lot of my content's diverse and I've tested a lot of things, I always come back to recruiting. I always come back to people. People know that. So yeah, I, I would say when, when you test it, you know, test it with an open mind, be willing to try different things. 
and analyze it. Spend some time figuring out why it worked, why it didn't. Don't be afraid for a post not to do well. Like it's just as important because you it's it's good to know what people don't like, and that's an it's an important part of of content. And and then again, like look, at, you know, again, if your if your goal is business, you need to look at the content that turns into business and and realize that you got to throw that in there. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like there's no. For me, it's all about experimentation with everything. So it's like, be careful to like take somebody's word of like what worked for them because it is too many variables. Like audiences really can be diverse for different people. So you could have somebody that's got a a really different audience to you. It's like, you don't necessarily want to take all their advice on and like, oh, these are the rules. Really no rules. It's like, figure out what works for you. Like, and I'm big on copy. Like I'm big on written posts because I just think they're, it's quicker and easier to get the full idea out in a quick way. And it's easy to produce. I also see the value in video because it's more engaging. But again, it's like I experiment with all of them. Probably the only one I don't experiment with that much is like the PDF sliders. Um, and that's just because it, man, it takes a long time to make one of those. That's right. That's right. That's and right. It's a big investment. The other one I don't mess with too much, which I want to work on is like what you do with the, you know, you have the podcast, the long form content, and then you repurpose it in a short, shorter form. It takes a lot of time. I think it's incredibly effective and I think it's probably the most effective like way to do it is to have a podcast and repurpose it. But again, it's like, you got to know like how much time do you have? How much energy are you good at editing? Are you not? And you got to figure out what's easiest for you. What's the quickest, what's going to get you the best return. And then you just got to experiment, 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 learn, figure it out. So that's my take on that. Well, I think what you said though, one of the, I mean, you said a lot there and a lot of really valuable things, but one of the things I think people should absolutely take away is there's a million experts out there. There's a million ways you could go about doing it, but you need to experiment for yourself and you need to figure out what works for you because we all have different strengths. We all have different audiences. We all have different needs and we all have a different ultimate intention and goal. And so, you know, you talked about going wide, you talked about going narrow and they each have their own benefits and negatives for each individual listening to this. If, if LinkedIn is a platform that you plan on using, which I think Joel and I both suggest that you do in most cases, do your own research, do your own testing. Here's the problem. Fear. A lot of people are just afraid to post. Why does that fear exist? And what suggestion do you have for somebody that wants to overcome that fear? There's multiple ways. I think a big fear for people is they don't want to lose their jobs. Legitimate fear in some ways. The second biggest fear is they don't want to look stupid. Third biggest fear is they don't want to learn business or they don't want to lose business from existing clients. And then I think the fourth fear is probably just like fear of the unknown. They don't know what's going to happen. So I, I think... You know, in tackling those fears, number one, with like the jo- like losing your job, unless you're posting something like really, really ridiculous or something really opinionated or, you know, which I would say like that's like if, you, if you're going to post like a Facebook political post, probably not a wise idea. If you're going to post something racist, probably not a wise idea. So if you're going to if you're going to post something like just really analyze it and figure like, can somebody legitimately get pissed off at this or is this going to offend somebody in like a way that I wouldn't I would never talk about this. And then I think for like a lot of business owners, it's like literally fear of like looking stupid. I think you just got to flip the fear on that. You got to flip that on its head and you got to be bold and you got to realize like you might actually look a little bit silly at the beginning, but you're not going to go viral either. Like the algorithm isn't programmed for you to go viral. Like it's, it's going to, you're going to start off slow. And so for most business owners, it's like, you just have to get out there and you have to do it and you have to get used to being uncomfortable with it. Number three, it's like that, that idea of like, you know, you're going to lose business. 
I, you know, I had a CEO once tell me, he's like, I don't want to do videos because I'm afraid that if, you know, a hundred million dollar CEO of a company, they don't like it. They're not going to want to do business. And I'm thinking like, well, what about the four that will want to do business? So right. scarcity versus abundance mindset. You got to think like the idea of content is to really connect you with people that connect like with you. And that's why it's important to be real in your content because you want to connect people who are going to connect with people who actually resonate with you. And then it's like number four is that just fear of the unknown. And it goes back to that earlier point where it's just got to get used to being uncomfortable. Like people ripped on me a lot for TikTok, for example. Like they were ripping on me. And I'm like, why are you doing why are you doing this? And I'm like, my goal really isn't to get TikTok famous. My goal is to just learn like what it is and like what does well, what doesn't. And I spent a lot of time consuming it. And I've I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine and she's she's pretty successful music artist, sold platinum albums and all this other stuff. And her record label is on her now about doing more TikTok content because she mm-hmm. did, she hasn't done it and they're on her about it, like in a major way. And 11 months ago when I was talking about it, it was like, they all kind of just ripped on me about it. I'm like, it's stupid. You don't do it. But I think for me, it was like, yeah, okay. Maybe I'll do look stupid. And some of those videos, like I do probably look a little bit stupid and that's okay. But it's like I'm learning and I'm consuming. And I think you have to be able to do that nowadays in whatever you're on. You've got to be able to like take that risk to look stupid. And most of the time, it's like you learn pretty quickly how to do things. And once you lose that fear, it goes back to like, why do you go to school? You go to school because you don't, you want to do what other people say and you don't want to look stupid. Mm -hmm. So I would say like that fear, anytime fear is the thing that's stopping you. I mean, I think that's a major indication of like, you should probably do it within reason obviously mm-hmm. fear could be a good thing but run toward it yeah exa- exactly exactly well you're the awkward old guy on on tiktok literally that's your name so if you're a little bit awkward it's on brand right and and one of the things you talk about is this need to avoid thinking or overthinking about the production of things because the message is what matters. Yes, there are people out there that are the Alex Sheridans and the Jonathan Palmers of the world who have a fantastic product. It's well-packaged and it's amazing, but not everyone needs to do that. And and when I say that, what I mean is they have really polished videos that are well-edited and everything. But then there's people that do everything in between that. And you're an advocate for the message being the most important factor. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for both those guys that you described, I mean, like, they're very thought out, great videos, very attentive. And I think that those videos are great. Like, there's no there's no joke. Both those guys you mentioned, like, I love the videos that they do. I think the challenge for most people is they've got to get down, like, what their message is. And I've seen it time and time again where people will throw in, they'll throw in a lot of money in production, a lot. Like I've seen people throw $20,000 for a day of shooting for a career video, for example, that wow. 200 people see. They put it on their career page and it's a career video, but they haven't even figured out like how to get people to the career page. First of all, like for any content, like the message is what resonates with people the most. And so you've got to really figure out like from where you're at right now, like you don't want to put too much money in the production. I would say like initially it's like you just want to get really comfortable with being on camera and being able to speak and being able to see what resonates with people. Learn that first. And then as that builds, like right now I'm probably in a position where I've spent a little bit more money on like editing, obviously got a microphone, but it's still my production levels pretty low, but that can be a strength too. Like I think production, a low production level done right screams authenticity. And a lot of times, Mm -hmm. like I got friends who make, 
great videos for like big corporations and they hate it because they'll have a great idea for the video and then it will go through the CEO and then this person, then this person, then this person. And by the time it's gone through the 10 layers of corporate ideas, it's like the most stale, boring video ever. And it's, or they've produced all of the authenticity out of it. And so I think to me, I've realized like build an audience and find that message first and really find out what that is and learn how to communicate that in the most real and raw fashion there is. And then go from that point and build up the production afterward. Mm. Cause otherwise it's like massively disappointing. Like if you throw thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in a production or equipment and then you get out there and there's like three people that care, man, that sucks. And it really brings you down. It is. And then you, then you give up. And so I think even with podcasting, it's like you can make a podcast pretty bootstrap. Do it. Do that for 10 episodes. And then if you like it and you're enjoying it, maybe invest some more into it. But we have a habit. And, and I think it's the habit is, is like it comes back to that fear where it's like, oh, I don't want to look. I don't want to look like. I didn't put any effort into it or I don't want to, I wanted to make, I want to look refined because I'm refined. And it's like, it doesn't <laughs> matter how much production you put into something. If it's a bad story and we see it in movies all the time, if it's a bad script, it's bad story and bad acting, it's going to bomb. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much production you put into it. And you got to keep that in mind, like focus on the message and the connecting, then focus on the production. Now, with that being said, guys like Jonathan and, and Alex, like they'll show you some ways to hack some of that production. Go ahead. But even then, it's like, I think it's just be careful with that. Just focus on the message first and then look to build up. And again, like for me, it's like I've done, I just do selfie videos now. And I did a couple that were produced. And then I did a couple that were just selfie videos and the selfie videos won out. That's right. It's not surprising because let's face it, message is king and when you're authentic when you're genuine when you're real like you are man you epitomize what it means to be real and authentic and it just shines through when you're doing your selfie videos joel i just gotta say i'm so grateful you could find joel his business is headhunter meteor so headhuntermeteor.com yeah you could also find an amazing guide he has which is at headhuntermedia.com forward slash the influencer He has a weekly live stream called The Headhunter Hideout every Monday at 12 Central. On social media, he is very active, as we've talked about on LinkedIn, and I know that is a phenomenal place to find him. It's best recruiter ever one. He's also (laughs) on Twitter. He's on TikTok. TikTok, we already mentioned, is awkward old guy. And where else, Joel, can they find you? And if there's anything else you want to talk about with regards to your business and how you help and support recruiting agencies and companies and functions, what else would you like to share? And any last words to the audience? The floor is yours. Yeah, I think uh, the the last place that you can find some of my content is on YouTube and it's just Headhunter Media. If you search that, you'll get to the channel and I post all the live streams that I do on there as well. Yeah, you know, I think we've talked enough about the business. I think what I would want to leave people with is all of the talk that we have around like LinkedIn, content creation, podcasts, social media platforms, I think it's easy to get overwhelmed. And so if there's one thing that we could just take away from this is I literally started from a place of like not even knowing what the word content meant or copy or video or editing or short form. I didn't know any of that stuff. And in a moment I took initiative and I took a risk on something and I, I put myself out there. 
and I fell in love with the impact. And so I just want to encourage you, like if you're in that place where you're like, man, I've tried before, I've tried before and I haven't gotten any traction, just take a step back and just look at like why you're doing something and, and motive matters with a lot of things. And if you're feeling like, well, all these gurus are telling me I should do this because it will grow my business. Just take a step back and go, why will it grow my business? So like, how will it grow my business? What's my actual goal with this? And really come back to like that Simon Sinek of like, just finding your why and finding out like the reason you're actually doing things and not getting overwhelmed, not looking at this as like a chore, but just enjoying the process. If you're struggling with like mental health, you're feeling overwhelmed, like definitely reach out to me for that as well. I get a lot of messages from people, obviously, but I also am like happy to give time as well. Yeah. I really appreciate being on here, Billy, and I appreciate everything you're doing. And it's an honor to be, uh, I've seen the guests that you have on the show too. So it's an honor to be able to to just chat with you for this long. Obviously, we've connected a lot offline as well. And, and I just appreciate your support, your encouragement as well. And I'm looking forward to continuing to build that relationship. As am I, my friend. And in the words of Darren Hardy in his book, Compound Effect, small, smart choices plus consistency plus time equals radical difference. It doesn't happen overnight, but the actions you take every day are what make the difference. So Joel Lalji, thank you for being on Inside Out. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.